The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Looking at Joseph Goldstein's book now for a couple of years, or a year and a half maybe, and we're in this section. The book is Mindfulness, a Practical Guide to Awakening. Joseph Goldstein's one of the early Western teachers and one of the main teachers in this particular style of Buddhist practice coming out of the Theravada Buddhist tradition, which is the kind of Buddhism you might find in uh, Thailand and Burma and Sri Lanka and Cambodia and, and Laos. And then here in the West, it's sometimes called Theravada Buddhism or classical Buddhism because it's based on the teachings of the historic Buddha or Vipassana or insight meditation. So Joseph is one of the better known teachers in that tradition, one of my main teachers. And uh, in this book, we're now on the chapter that has to do with the path. And it's part of this model that comes from the Buddha's first talk, where he's basically helping us replace our normal view, we, we would say, so our normal, normal view, which we probably experience a lot of the day today, which is, you know, how do I get a nice experience? What do I have to do now to make this experience feel good? So you might adjust your body, you know, or if you don't like what I'm saying, you might replace hearing what I'm saying with some thought or some memory or whatever. So we're always, it's easy rather for us to fall back into that strategic struggle to get rid of what's unpleasant and to get ourselves to something that's pleasant. And we do that by moving our body away from what's noxious and towards what's pleasant. And we do it with our mind by, oh, I don't want to think about that painful memory. I'll bring this other thought up. So that's our normal mode. The Buddha understood that from watching his own mind. And then through his own training, his own path, discovery, he realized something like that's not the way. <laughs> Spending our whole life struggling to get away from unpleasant experience and struggling to hold on to pleasant experience is a formula for unhappiness, not happiness. But we do it because we don't know what else to do and we just keep trying harder. And then mostly we're not that satisfied. And that's if you ask around your friends and, and really ask for a sincere response, they'll tell you, yeah, yeah, they have moments of pleasantness, but they're never completely fulfilled. Even people who are relatively fortunate or privileged aren't completely satisfied with their experience. Right? No matter how many nice meals, nice nights of sleep, nice interactions with friends, lovers that we've had, is there anybody who's completely filled? Don't need any more pleasant experiences? You've had your fill. Sated. <laughs> No, no, that's just not how that game is played. The trying to get the pleasant and get away from the unpleasant, it doesn't lead to fulfillment, it leads to more of the game. Trying to get rid of what's unpleasant and get more of what's pleasant. The game leads to the game, which is endlessly stressful or frustrating, but it's what we know, it's what's familiar, and we take it to be ordinary happiness, like when that game is going relatively well, we consider ourselves relatively happy. 
and when that game of trying to get what we like and get away from what we don't like isn't going well, then we don't feel happy. And the Buddha said, well, there's another way, and here is the path. It's a set of 12 insights. We have to appreciate there is that experience. Instead of thinking that experience is our vehicle to happiness, the Buddha says, Experience is just what it is, sometimes pleasant, sometimes unpleasant, but it isn't a vehicle for personal happiness. It's sometimes pleasant and sometimes unpleasant. And the fact that we can't get happiness from experience, ultimate happiness, permanent happiness from experience, makes it dukkha. So dukkha is a word that's used for like ordinary suffering when you stub your toe or somebody insults you. That's dukkha, that's stressful. But there's a more subtle kind of dukkha which is, this is what I'm pointing to now, which is the deeper understanding of experience when the Buddha says it's unsatisfactory. He's not talking about just stubbing your toe hurts or being embarrassed hurts. He's saying that experience isn't really here to make human beings happy. It's not about us. You know, the pleasantness of the day today, the bright sun, it isn't here to make us happy. Or if it was one of those 20 below bitterly cold days, it wouldn't be here to punish us. It's pleasant and unpleasant in terms of our subjective experience, but it's not personally there to make us happy or unhappy. That's what we do with the experience because of habit. So we have the wrong attitude about experience. We expect it to be like the stepping stone or the building blocks to making me happy. But it's a it's never going to work. We ruin our relationships with our partners that way. We expect this person, the experience of being with this person, to make me happy. But it doesn't work that way. Our partners, our friends, can't make us happy. And expecting them or wanting them to make us happy or trying to manipulate them in order to, for them to make us happy generally undermines the health of the relationship. So the Buddha says, notice the limitations of experience. Notice this very powerful underlying reality that experience isn't built, isn't designed to make human beings happy. I mean, that uh, clearly we have temporarily happiness, uh, temporary pleasant experiences when experiences are a certain way and unpleasant experiences when they're not. So I'm not saying that some experiences aren't pleasant, some aren't unpleasant. But in terms of a, a deeper, more pervasive happiness, we don't get that from experience. And that's unsatisfactory because we want it from experience, but we can't get it. So it's a, that's a very subtle kind of, of stress that the experiences of our life, both the internal, like emotion and thought, and external, like tactile experiences and sense treats, like a nice smell, a nice taste, that although they may be pleasant or unpleasant, they're not there to provide lasting happiness. They just, they can't. And to the degree the mind begins to realize that, see, we already know it, the mind already knows it unconsciously, it's just because it's so true. But when we let it into the light of consciousness, where we really like own that, you can imagine it radically shifts 
our relationship to sense experience. Because now the world isn't here for me to figure out how to make it make me happy. The world is really here for us to, I mean, this is sort of a different point, but the world is really here for us to be generous with, to respond to with love and compassion. It's a place for loving service, not a place to make me happy. And that's sort of interesting in itself, but we we won't go that direction tonight. So that's the first noble truth. We talked about that in December, and I think late uh, November and December. The more we sort of let that understanding mature, then we start to see that the whole dynamic of creating suffering for ourselves is we expect experience to deliver happiness, so we get attached. We start taking experience personally. So it's unpleasant. When it's unpleasant, we personally feel betrayed by what's going on. Like our, we have indigestion. But it feels personal. Like either we want to get angry either at ourselves for eating what we shouldn't have eaten or somebody else or just the world generally for the limitations of my body. So we keep taking things personally and we start to correlate that in a world where experience is just what it is, it's sometimes pleasant, sometimes unpleasant, but isn't here to make a human being happy. And yet we have this programming, this cultural programming, maybe even genetic programming, that I'm, I'm, I'm going to get attached, I'm going to use experience, I'm going to identify with experience as a way to be happy. So that attachment to experience, it's like looking for experience to be our savior to save us from our unhappiness. That clinging to the next pleasant experience, wanting it to really take care of me, only to be disappointed eventually when it can't, or when it turns out not to be pleasant after all anyway, or it's pleasant, but it comes with a lot of baggage, (laughs) right? We take something that's not ours, we really like it, but it's not ours. So now we're worried if we're going to get caught. Maybe some of you heard the news story. I think it was on, um, it was after lunch, I was listening to it. So it was that um, public radio program on the media that's on on Sunday afternoons. And Brooke Gladstone, I think is her name, one of the hosts, was interviewing, I think it was her, anyway, somewhere on the news, um, the former director of admissions at MIT, one of the better-known universities, most pre- one of the more prestigious universities known for math and science. And uh, she got a job a long, long time ago because uh, they were looking for women to be part of the um, admissions department to help recruit women into the field of sciences because there weren't, back then, weren't that many women going into engineering and science and math. And so in doing that, in applying for the job, she um, lied about her background and said she had a few degrees that she didn't have. And so then as she worked in the admissions department, people really loved her and she had a lot of success. Do you know this story? Oh, yeah. And it wasn't that long ago anyway. She slowly worked her way all the way to the head of admissions, which is a very, at a place like MIT, is a pretty amazing job to have. And she started to have all kinds of symptoms, heart palpitations and 
because she knew what she had done. And she, you know how it is when we're living on top of a law, even if it was, you know, and we were quite good at justifying these reasons, you know, the, the, the choice we made to cheat or to lie or whatever. Um, but at some point, she, it all kind of fell apart. She had to resign. And so they were interviewing her because in light of Brian Williams and all these other things coming out about people lying about their past. So it's this identification, you know, we, and we start to believe, we, we cling and start to believe to the stories we tell ourselves. We're sort of dependent, the mind is dependent on the world being the way we want it to be. So we construct our reality, the story of ourself, but the constructions never match the reality because the reality isn't conceptual for one. And when we, not only is our reality conceptual, like it's in the form of a story of who I am, what's good, what's bad, who I think you are, but how, when I construct my story, it's being constructed with all my biases, cultural biases, prejudices, and of course, in a more subtle way, to inflate myself to sort of make me feel safe, make me feel good, which doesn't actually match up with the underlying reality of things coming and going, different experiences being known. So it's always fragile. So this second truth that the Buddha points to, or insight, is we're seeing how the mind, because it has this wrong view of experience, like it can make me happy if I just get it right, and she did, you know, she got it right. She was well-liked, well-loved, well-respected. And then it all fell apart. I mean, she, the interview was quite interesting. She seems like she was so, the moment she, she got caught and she resigned, the heart palpitation stopped. You know, the stress went away. Even though it was like so embarrassing, I guess Inside Edition, which is some news program I don't know of, but where they were outside her door. And so it was a big scandal. Uh, and for at least a few days in the media. Um, but she felt so much better to have sort of that whole inflation deflated, gone. So this is the area, the second noble truth, where we're realizing that process of construction is always related to attachment, self-view, protecting self, self-drama. Now, Our self-drama sometimes are very negative, like how bad I am, how little self-worth I have. So, But that's just as much of a self-drama as thinking I'm better than the rest of you, right? In terms of creating a story that stars me at the center, me being no good or me being better than the rest of you, it still stars me in the middle, you know, as the central character. And that... That is the sort of result, that suffering then is the result of this basic wrong view of experience. Now when the mind sees that over and over again, it sees that implosion where the identification, the attachment, that whole edifice doesn't make sense and the mind just lets go. And we've all had that experience where we've been in some self-drama and then fortunately there was enough space in the mind where there's a moment of turning 
And instead of being caught in the drama, lost in the drama, participating in the drama, the mind just saw it. Oh yeah, I'm just spinning. I'm just, the mind is just obsessing. It's just this story, right? Have you had that? And it just collapses. And it can uh, both be exhilarating and liberating when that happens, but it can also be scary because sometimes when it collapses, what's left, is the simple bodily feeling, but it's the bodily feeling that is the result of a body that has been tight for a long time. Because when I'm obsessing in some self-drama, the body reflects that mental tension. And if I've been you know, spinning for a while, then a lot of tension gets laid down. So when it pops, and we're just there in the moment, right in the middle of the experience of the body, can be unpleasant. And what do we want to do? We want to generate another drama, intoxicating drama, so the mind gets lost in it, so it doesn't have to be present with how it feels now to be in the body, to be in the body that is the repository of all our noxious, you know, it sort of receives, gets imprinted with all of our noxious, neurotic, mental patterns. No wonder we don't want to be mindful because being mindful means this is one of the karmic results. Like karma just means intentional mental activity leaves a trace. In the mind it leaves a trace and it leaves a trace in the body and then often our neurotic activity leaves a trace out in the world too. We, We infect other people with our neurotic activity. Either they react to us or they come along for the ride, but it spreads outside, it gets laid down in the body, and then it, it uh, conditions to mind to more likely go in that same direction. So if I'm being defensive, it's more like, likely I'll be defensive in the future because that's the tendency of the mind. So this is what we mean by karmic results. What the mind does has consequences out there, in the body, and in the mind stream, or the, the way the mind's conditioned. So this is this deepening understanding of how suffering arises. So the second noble truth is called the truth or the insight into the causes of suffering, into the cause of suffering, which is this construction project involving attachment or identification. And then the more the mind wisdom in the mind sees that, the more we get those moments of it all imploding, collapsing. And and then that experience needs to be fully understood. This is the third insight or the third noble truth, which is realizing the truth of cessation, really getting that moment when attachment ceases in the mind. So the question is, do you know the mind or do you know the heart when there's no attachment active, no identification active. Because that's an important mind to know. And it happens. There are moments when attachment has ceased in your mind, but you have to be mindful. You have to be mindfully awake, interested in what is the mind, the heart, the body, when there's no attachment operating. What is that experience? And so... The more we realize that, the more we realize this is the way to relate 
this is what this world is about. It's not to get experiences to make us happy, but it's about being in a world of experience without attachment. That's the path to happiness. You see, it's a radically different approach to happiness. Normally, the conventional view that we just get enculturated with is the way to happiness is to gather experiences that are pleasant and get away from experiences that are unpleasant. And if you get lucky enough to get mostly just pleasant experiences, you'll think, relatively speaking, that you're happy. But it's still a stressful life, even if you're one of the fortunate people that has mostly pleasant experiences. It's still stressful because you don't know what's going to happen next. And all of your pleasant experiences have to be renewed over and over and over again. And the thing is, it's like heroin. You have a little and then you need a little bit more. I don't know this personally, but I'm told. <laughs> you know, So we, you might have uh, gone through the stress of having a kitchen renovation and now you have a really nice modern kitchen. But how long does that last? before you hear about the next thing, whatever it might be. Oh, now it's not, you know, it's not granite countertops. Now it's, you know, and then whatever the next thing is. Bamboo flooring or, you know, the Vitamix. You know, normal blenders are not okay. You need blenders that really blend so fast that they break down cell walls so you get more nutrients as you blend your kale and pineapple juice and whatever else. <laughs> I mean, there's really no end. And that's just our kitchens. Cars, electronic devices, um, exercise routines. You know, we, have, we could have a great one, but then if you had a personal trainer, imagine how much better it would be. I don't watch any football heaven for decades, but I did read a very interesting article about what's the... Uh, the quarterback of the winning team in the Super Bowl. Brady has this personal trainer that maybe some of you know this, that he's worked with for years. You know, and you think about that, like, we all want to be in shape, but it's not so easy to be motivated. But if we had somebody who really knew what they were doing, and not only is he a trainee, like, he, he, it's hands-on. He, like, really knows how to manipulate muscles and strains and, like, magic fingers. Now imagine if every day, you know, we just get on the phone, oh yeah, I need about two hours today, or, and we had that, so this is the kind of mentality we could have about, there's no end, there's no end to what would make this even better. So that's the stress. So it's a radical shift with the third noble truth where we realize the reason to be here is to develop or to fully realize the experience of non-attachment. To be in the world, to be connected, to be engaged, but not attached. Now, this should sound provocative, especially those of you with kids or responsibilities, i.e. all of us. (laughs) Not that we all have kids, but we all have important responsibilities. And this idea of non-attachment seems a little insulting when you have a screaming kid, or you have a screaming body, or you have global warming, or racial injustices, or economic injustices that are so apparent when you look, 
and you want to do something, you feel like something needs to be done, and it just makes so much sense to be attached. But attachment isn't functional. Responding is good. Responding with compassion. Compassion can be quite powerful and strong. So love isn't some weak, feeble response. It can be quite strong response. But the attachment, the personalizing. So let's say there's a mess. You know, our life is a mess. We have dirty closets and and long to-do lists that things should have been done long ago. And the world is a mess and our families are not per- So there's a lot of imperfection in the world. Now, is the appropriate response to personalize all that? Or is the appropriate response to be intimate, to be connected, and to let the sensitivity, the vulnerability, the openness uh, bring about the appropriate response that the moment is asking for? We don't need attachment to respond. So this path of non-attachment, this is the insights that arise with this third area of practice where the mind is realizing the truth of non-attachment. The actual, or one teacher from Thailand, Dachan Cha, this great Thai monk, and Buddhist monk and meditation teacher from the last century, he called it the reality of non-grasping. Because the reality we know is grasping. So when we start waking up, having moments where there's clarity about non-grasping, well, it's like, oh, this is what it's about. And then that sets in motion the next insight, set of insights having to do with the way or the path. So once the mind has a sense, even if it's just a beginning sense that purpose, you could say, or the goal or the aspiration for life is the freedom of non-grasping, the freedom of non-attachment, the cessation of self-centeredness, right? That ending. Then what gets clear is then how do I live? Like what kind of training or what sort of way do I need to develop my mind? And the Buddha's way is this, what we call the Eightfold Path. We integrate the truth, reality of non-grasping in terms of our view, in terms of our actions and relationships in the world, and in terms of our mental activity. So basically, we're integrating the reality of non-grasping into all aspects of our life, from the gross aspects like being in the world, having relationships with other human beings, having responsibility, What does non-grasping, non-attachment look like there? What does it look like in terms of our mental activity, that inner dialogue? What does thinking look like when there's no attachment? What does planning look like? What sort of mental qualities, emotions are there? Well, not greed, anger, and delusion, but maybe equanimity, maybe loving-kindness, maybe compassion, maybe a basic appreciation for what's beautiful. Maybe that's what's there and motivating. And then the last, the most subtle place to integrate it is in terms of understanding. What is our beliefs, what do beliefs look like when they don't involve attachment? What is the mind's understanding and its intentions, its motivations? 
What do they look like? So that's what we've been talking about. I'll just say a little bit more about this and then open it up. We'll take the last 15 minutes for people's comments. But I'll spend another 10 minutes looking at this third of the path. It's the wisdom end of the path or the most subtle. And then in the weeks ahead, we'll look at the ethical conduct and our relationships, what non-attachment looks there. And then in terms of mental activity or the shape or texture of the mind, what does non-attachment look like there? So last week I mentioned briefly that one of the main aspects as we start understanding the truth of non-attachment is is this deepening appreciation for the lawfulness of everything, the lawfulness of our minds, let's say, or the lawfulness of the world. And most relevant about that lawfulness is attachment is unskillful, non-attachment is skillful. Self-view is unskillful, no fixed self-view, you could say, is skillful. A Buddha once gave a talk where he said, and this is a very rough paraphrase, but he said something like, you know, once before I had my deep insight and I was just a practitioner, and I noticed in my mind, you know, sitting and during the day just observing all the expressions of our minds, the Buddha's mind in this case, you know, he noticed some of those Habits of mind, activities of mind were skillful, meaning they led to states of ease. And some of those mind states, qualities of mind were unskillful, meaning they led to contracted states of mind, feeling burdened or weighed down. And then the thought occurred to him, he said, perhaps I should organize it so that I put all the skillful qualities so I can quickly recognize them here and all the unskillful qualities here. And having done that, having sort of recognized, okay, these are the skillful qualities. When these forces or qualities of mind are active, things go well, more lightness, more skill, less harming of myself and others. When these unskillful qualities of mind, and by unskillful, it's sort of tautological. When something's unskillful, by definition, it leads to stressful states for ourselves and others. That's how we know it's unskillful. So greediness is unskillful because in the moment when our mind is greedy, it's tight. And we tend to do things when we have a lot of greediness that set in motion or increase the probability of me and other people being tight in the future, right? Isn't that true? Because like when I'm really greedy, I start compromising my ethics. I might take something that's not really mine or I might manipulate my wife to have the bigger piece of dessert because I, you know, we have amazing ways of rationalizing things. <laughs> I don't really want to confess mine right now. <laughs> <laughs> but you all know how easy it is to rationalize things um, because we're greedy, because we think we need it. And it doesn't matter, the bigger picture doesn't matter in that moment because we're attached to that, that sort of more narrow perspective. So um, the Buddha organized it and, he, and then in seeing this he thought, well how about these, I forget what was on this half, but let's say these unskillful qualities, perhaps I should practice learning how to not feed them, 
not reinforce them, to abandon them. And maybe with these wholesome qualities, I should learn how to feed them, reinforce them, make them stronger in the mind. And when I did that, this is what he said, this was his conclusion. He was using this as a, a way of teaching his uh, students. When I did that, of course, difficult states, states of suffering lessened, states of happiness increased. So this is a basic insight that has to do with wisdom. When we bring our insights of the reality of non-attachment, as we have more moments of clearly recognizing moments of non-attachment, or let's just be more honest, states where there's less attachment versus more attachment, right? So maybe it's not perfectly, the mind isn't perfectly free of attachment, but we already know, even right now, we can bring to mind moments when there was a ton of attachment, and very clearly we were suffering in those moments, right? Well, now let's start noticing moments where there's relatively little attachment, And notice how light and free and skillful the mind is in those moments. And we'll see that the mind is beginning, it can begin to integrate, generalize the insight that all those qualities of mind that are related to attachment, you don't get greed without attachment. And you don't get anger and fear without attachment. Right? There's always a self-view with greed and aversion. Even distractedness and denial, there's always a somebody who doesn't really want to show up. So when you look at any negative view, any quality of mind that sets emotion contraction, there's always self-view there. So the first step in understanding this, the path, like how to practice, how to live, is even if right now it's mostly just on faith because you don't have your direct own direct experience, so you're just sort of checking out to see whether what the Buddha said is correct, but just to start checking out, is it true that states of mind involving a lot of attachment, a lot of self-view, drama, self-drama, are suffering states and lead to suffering states for myself and others? If so, then we should, over time, develop a lot of skillful means to not feed those, but starve or to diminish those states, not to promote them. And then the same thing, like you start examining real moments of generosity, not pretend generosity, did you notice that? Not that kind of generosity, but just moments of really giving ourselves, responding appropriately, and the lightness and the good feeling that comes. And really appreciating moments of kindness and compassion, moments of appreciation and gratitude, moments of clarity and equanimity, and how skillful and what got set in motion. So it's like this is where we want to participate, not so much in getting the experiences that are pleasant and getting away from the experiences that are unpleasant, but rather appreciating the lawfulness and refining our understanding of what states of mind, what attitudes, moods, set in motion happiness, and what moods don't. They go the other way. 
It's a deeper way of taking responsibility for our mind. The more we do this, we just start getting wiser about what's skillful and unskillful in terms of our understanding, our attitude, our beliefs. What beliefs, you know, like the old poor me belief, right? This is something that's very common in all of us. And we masquerade it pretty well as we become adults. Kids, you know, they don't bother to hide or pretty it up. So when they're in the oh, poor me, you know, it's like we're very clear to see. But adults, you know, we have our, you know, very special ways of complaining without sort of, oh, poor me. (laughs) Nobody loves me. You know, because nobody would want to be around us if we were that unsophisticated with our oh, poor me story. But nonetheless, we have our oh, poor me story, right? And what we have to see is that, like, this is not the way. But that means we have to feel what we feel. Take responsibility to put it down. Because we use these It's like this is the great tragedy. We use the attitudes and the activities of mind to avoid feeling yucky, but these activities are exactly what create the yuck. You know, the reason we feel so disconnected, alienated, apart, separate, is because we're we're reinforcing the oh, poor me. I mean, there is no more of an isolating thought than oh, poor me. And there's no more of a connecting sort of feeling than service. You know, just submitting, giving ourselves to something that needs to be done, not even for our own sake, but it can be, you know, just even taking care of ourselves. With love can be very healing. Raking the leaves when they need to be raked or picking up a beer bottle that somebody left without making a self-drama about it. Like, why are there so many drunks around leaving? You know, it's like we ruin a simple moment of doing something beautiful by creating some self-story. Like, it isn't fair that I have to pick it up. People should put away their own bottles. Well, yeah, that's actually true. People should. It would be nice. It would be a nice world if people put away all their trash. But the point is, we have this opportunity to be the one who does something that needs to be done. There's a certain joy in doing something that needs to be done. Just because it needs to be done, not because you're the person who should do it, that's a self-story, right? But just all you know is this needs to be done and I can do it. So I'll be the one who does it and I'll get the joy of doing what needs to be done. So I'll just end by sharing this uh, simile that the Buddha used in um, going from a more simple version of wisdom, they're skillful and unskillful. So we're just that's the basic wisdom, but this matures. So because this can be a little tight, like, oh, I have to be vigilant to notice what my mind is doing and whether those are skillful qualities or unskillful qualities, and do I feed the skillful or feed the uns- you know. So all that can be a little tight. But what matures in the mind is that, on the one hand, there are skillful and unskillful qualities of mind, and it matters which ones get acted out. 
that all of this, including the wisdom that's discerning the difference between skillful and unskillful, all of this is a process of nature too. So it's like not even getting attached to trying to be skillful. So initially, as we realize it matters, the qualities of mind, the attitudes, the beliefs, they matter. So initially, it does seem very personal. I'm going to common ground because I don't want to be falling into that habit of, oh, poor me, for the rest of my life. It's bad enough doing it when I'm in my 50s, but when I'm in my 80s, I don't want to be sitting around going, oh, poor me, right? Because it's such an unpleasant state to inhabit. Or whatever it is for you, you know, your own version of, oh, poor me, nobody loves me, or whatever. So we want to put an end to it. So that work initially feels personal, but then we realize that taking it personal gets in the way of doing the work. This is an amazing insight, right? Getting tight about doing this work correctly doesn't help you do the work correctly. Making a self-project out of your meditation is in the wrong direction. So we, that doesn't mean you shouldn't do your, your spiritual practice. It just means don't mess it up like we mess up everything else in life. <laughs> you know, it's the same thing with our, our loves in life, our relationships. We make it a self-project and we generally ruin it. But if we can just allow it to be a natural happening, it might just work. That doesn't mean it's perfect because as we let it be a natural project, our relationships and our meditation, our spiritual practices, well, yeah, our greed, anger, and delusion, it's going to show its face. It's going to act out. But wisdom will see it. And wisdom will see that it leads to suffering. And wisdom will lose its interest in it, right? So we have to let it all play out. And getting tight, taking it personal, just gets in the way. There's so many stories of people, you know, spending a lot of money and time organizing their lives so they can go on retreat. And then it just so happens they're sitting next to somebody who's sniffling the whole time or fidgeting or something that drives them crazy. You know, and they spend their 10 days or whatever cultivating aversion and hatred and judgment and, oh, poor me, you know, oh, this is my vacation time or, and here I am and it's your fault. And, or even, I've been practicing for 20 years, I should be able to handle somebody sniffling, I'm such a lousy meditator, what's going on with me? But basically practicing suffering and getting good at it. We're getting, we, when we practice suffering, we get better at it. We get better at being a suffering human being. When we practice, oh poor me, we get better at it. When we practice letting nature be nature, we get better at non-attachment, the freedom of non-grasping. And so the metaphor the Buddha used, and I'll end here, is uh, when you take a cup of salt, maybe you've heard this before, and you put it in a pint of water, that water gets really salty. And if you take a, a cup of salt and you put it in Lake Superior, you're not going to notice it, right? So the way this metaphor works is when our, we have a lot of self-drama, 
the ordinary ups and downs in life seem really big and really personal. Somebody likes us, it seems so amazing. I can't believe somebody actually wants to spend time with me. They love me, you know. They like how I look or whatever. The ways that we, you know, it can be huge. And when somebody looks at us the wrong way, it seems so big. That's the cup of salt and a pint of water. Every little up and down seems so personal. Now, as our wisdom in practice matures, it's more like Lake Superior. Space is a nice metaphor for wisdom. More space, more wisdom, more less space, more narrowness, more delusion, more suffering, right? More space, more perspective. Of course, sometimes it's like this. Less space, why the hell is it this way? This isn't fair. It always happens to me. Why me? So we want to become like Lake Superior. And that's the whole, you know, the, the way, this fourth noble truth, which is about the path, cultivating wisdom, cultivating wholesome relationships, cultivating a steady, peaceful mind. These are the three aspects of the path. It's really about realizing the truth of non-grasping or integrating the truth of non-attachment in the whole range of our life, from our relationships, our underlying views, how the thinking mind, the activity of mind operates. All of that with with the truth or the reality of non-grasping. So we'll come back to this next week, actually for several more weeks as we look at the whole range of the path, but there's 10 minutes for questions or comments, experiences from your own practice. Yeah, Emily. Well, I have a practical question about um, meditating. So when I first started meditating, I would meditate for like 30 minutes and then I would stop and busy lives, it's really okay for the formal sitting time to be more about deepening the state of calm, joy, and ease, because the that wisdom part of the practice that you were doing with your open awareness practice, you can practice that for the other 15 hours of the day, because that's, that's actually a very suitable place to do more open awareness practice. And the calm you get from your hour sit or your half an hour sit will really support being steady 
and patient and non-attached to the beautiful and the not-so-beautiful mind states that come and go. So there are different ways to practice. There's nothing wrong with the open awareness practice as your main sitting practice. And I, over you know several years, I just cycle through different styles of practicing because there are different personalities and people are at different places. And it doesn't mean, it isn't sort of like beginners go here, then more experience. No, no, it's more of a cycle. So people might be, might have been doing a more open attention, but they might come and do formal loving kindness practice for a while or more of the formal breath meditation like we've been doing the last couple months. So you just kind of follow your nose. And in this sort of situation where you're working with a teacher, you might just follow that person's instructions so that when you're on your own practicing at home, then you have like a set of skillful means that you can draw on. And what you use, can be, you can resolve to use whatever you think would be most useful. But now you have a couple options because you've been training yourself according to the instructions, like when you go on a retreat or come here on a Sunday night. Just follow. That's what I would recommend. If you, unless you have a lot of clarity and you're really on a roll with a particular way of practicing, then it's totally fine to completely ignore what the teacher's saying and just do your whatever is working for you. That's okay when you come here. Thanks, Emily. Other thoughts from the talk or from your practice you'd like to bring up? Now, during meditation, I might be off speaking about just because sometimes there are other thoughts that are just so pleasant that are coming up with their own dream. It's like it's happening every day. That would come out of my mind. It'd be difficult to get back to thoughts so he was saying that sometimes in the practice you know thoughts will come up and they'll be very pleasant or you didn't use the word seductive but they can be very seductive and the mind gets attached identified with that because mostly we take mental activity to be self when a thought is moving through my mind Almost always, the tendency is there, well, it's like me talking to me. That's my thought, or I'm the one saying that thought. It takes a lot of steadiness and a lot of wisdom to recognize that a thought is just a thought. I mean, what actually is a thought? Just repeat the thought several times, I haven't seen a pink elephant, okay? And notice what that thought is, like what it is and what it isn't. So a thought is not much of anything. It's so ephemeral, a thought. Or even something, you know, more straightforward, like in my case, I'm a male or I self-identify as a male. It seems like it should be substantial, like, that's really true about me. It's not just a thought, but it is just a thought. You know, in my direct, immediate experience, when I'm not identified with thought, now you just use your own direct, immediate experience of body and mind. Is there anything male, female, neither male nor female, about your direct, immediate experience? Gender is a construction of our minds. 
but it seems so substantial. Culturally, it is so substantial, the, the issue of gender. But it's a construction. There's nothing in sensation that's male or female or neither male nor female. Right, but what is that, right? That, yeah, it's sensation. Yeah, pleasant or unpleasant sensation, you know, cramping or whatever it might be. But it's just what it is, right? Yeah. I know of a technique that was provided for me that works if you're attracted to a thought. Yeah. Yeah, that's the basic move in practice is to either actually note or name as this woman is suggesting or just to notice it's just thought, just thinking. Thinking is just thinking. It's just a thought being known. That's the basic mindfulness move. And the uh, seductiveness is that it feels personal. So that's that second noble truth. It's that construction. Like that thought refers to me. And there's some sense that I'm going to get something by the identification and the proliferation with that thought, one thought leading to the next. But what we have to see is that identification, that attachment, that proliferation is actually stressful. And this is the difficult thing, especially with when it's pleasant, because it is truthfully pleasant on the surface. And so what we see is the juiciness of whatever we're thinking about, fantasizing about. We don't see through that thin shell of juiciness into the basic tightness of the thinking, of the obsessive thinking. But it is, it's tight. And the more the mind is steady, calm, and clear, the more it won't be fooled by the surface juiciness. Because there is some pleasantness on the surface. It's always very interesting with things, and I will have to end here with this comment. But, you know, we totally renovated, rebuilt this place. Now we're doing it with the retreat property. My wife and I have been doing it with our house slowly over the years which is the old common ground uh, building for those who've been around for a while, renovation. And you know how it is when your mind starts thinking, I don't know about your mind, but my mind, when it starts thinking about renovation, or it could be a new job too, but you know, in this example, renovation, it's like initially it's really juicy. Oh, I could do, we could do this, and that would be so nice, and then this. And then after you know, a few minutes, 10 minutes, it starts, the, the juiciness, the excitement, is starting to get outweighed by all the tension, all the problems, all the... And eventually we just want to drop the whole thing. Now, if you see that a couple thousands, tens of thousands of times, eventually we don't even want to go there because we know where it leads. That doesn't mean we won't actually do a project, but we're not going to unnecessarily fantasize about it because it's stressful. It's like looking at a catalog. Initially, it's kind of juicy. But you do that for a couple hours or half an hour, you know, even a really exciting catalog, and it, it really eats away at your mind. Or 
looking for something interesting to watch on TV or on the internet. You know, initially it's kind of exciting, but then it's there's sort of this desperation. <laughs> so it's really good to push it to the nth degree. Some of you read, uh, what was that, Zorba the Greek. Remember that scene in the book? I don't know if it's in the movie, but in the book, this is a great book if you haven't read it. Um, this sort of free spirit guy uh, is obsessed with his, is it strawberries? So I think it's strawberries. And so finally he just goes and he buys like several bushels or whatever of strawberries and makes himself eat it. So initially, you know, it's like great. And then, but he keeps going even when it's really painful until he really sees like what it, the, the desperation, the sort of suffering involved in the, in the need and the grasping. So I don't know if that's really the way, but <laughs> like in the, in Buddhist tradition, there's a story about what kind of horse are we? You know, you can think about a, a charioteer with a horse pulling his cart. And some horses are pretty wise, and the charioteer just needs to make a little clicking sound, and the horse knows, oh yeah, go fast, go slow, go right, go left. And some horses are not that smart, and the charioteer has to whip, but they don't actually whip the horse, they crack the whip above the horse. But that loud sound is enough to get the horse's attention. And, and some horses are really dull, and they need to be beaten. And sometimes in our life, we're like that dull horse. It's like, the consequences have to come and slap us in the face before we change our behavior. And sometimes we don't even need to get close. We see other people making the mistake and we don't even go close to making the mistake ourselves. So that's a better way to go. It's not to have to be beaten up by life to learn our lessons. But sometimes, clearly we do. So we'll leave it here. Just take a few seconds to let go of the words. Maybe just time for a breath. And appreciating the teachings and being here together. Appreciating the community. And thanks, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.